Chapter 1 of Four-Day Planet by H. Beam Piper This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Four-Day Planet Chapter 1 The Ship from Terra I went through the gateway towing my equipment in a contragravity hamper over my head. As usual, I was wondering what it would take, short of a revolution, to get the city of Port Sandor as clean and tidy and well-lighted as the spaceport area. I knew Dad's editorials, and my sarcastic news stories wouldn't do it. We'd been trying long enough. The two girls in bikinis in front of me pushed on, still gabbling about the fight one of them had had with her boyfriend, and I closed up behind the half-dozen monster hunters in long trousers, ankle boots, and short boat jackets, with big knives on their belts. They must have all been from the same crew, because they weren't arguing about whose ship was fastest, had the toughest skipper, and made the most money. They were talking about the price of tallow-wax, and they seemed to have picked up a rumor that it was going to be cut another ten centisoles a pound. I eavesdropped shamelessly, but it was the same rumor I'd picked up myself a little earlier. "'Hi, Walt!' somebody behind me called out. "'Looking for some news that's fit to print?' I turned my head. It was a man of about thirty-five with curly brown hair and a wide grin. Adolf Lautier, the entertainment promoter. He and Dad each owned a share in the Port Sandor telecast station and split their time between his music and drama films and Dad's newscasts. "'All the news is fit to print, and if it's news, the Times prints it,' I told him. "'Think you're going to get some good thrillers this time?' He shrugged. "'I just asked that to make conversation.' He never had any way of knowing what sort of films would come in. The ones the Painaminda was bringing should be fairly new, because she was outbound from Terra. He'd go over what was aboard, and trade one for one for the old films he'd shown already. "'They tell me there's a real old Terran-style western been showing on Volan that ought to be coming our way this time,' he said. "'It was filmed in South America.' with real horses. That would go over big here. Almost everybody thought horses were as extinct as dinosaurs. I've seen so-called westerns, with the cowboys riding Frey and Oakry. I mentioned that, and then added, They'll think the old cattle towns like Dodge and Abilene were awful sissy places, though. I suppose they were, compared to Port Sandor, Lotier said. Are you going aboard to interview the distinguished visitor? Which one? I asked. Glenn Morell or Leo Belcher? Lautier called Leo Belcher something you won't find in the dictionary, but which nobody needs to look up. The hunters, ahead of us, heard him and laughed. They couldn't possibly have agreed more. He was going to continue with the fascinating subject of Mr. Leo Belcher's ancestry and personal characteristics, and then bit it off short. I followed his eyes and saw old Professor Hartzenbosch, the principal of the school, approaching. 
Oh, here you are, Mr. Lotier, he greeted. I trust that I did not keep you waiting. Then he saw me. Why, it's Walter Boyd. How is your father, Walter? I assured him as to Dad's health, and inquired about his own, and then asked him how things were going at school. As well as could be expected, he told me, and I gathered that he kept his point of expectation safely low. Then he wanted to know if I were going aboard to interview Mr. Morell. Really, Walter, it is a wonderful thing that a famous author like Mr. Morell should come here to write a book about our planet, he told me very seriously, and added, as an afterthought, Have you any idea where he intends staying while he is among us? Why, yes, I admitted. After the Painaminda radioed us their passenger list, Dad talked to him by screen and invited him to stay with us. Mr. Morell accepted, at least until he can find quarters of his own. There are a lot of good poker players in Port Sandor, but Professor Jan Hartzenbosch is not one of them. The look of disappointment would have been comical if it hadn't been so utterly pathetic. He'd been hoping to lasso Morell himself. I wonder if Mr. Morell could spare time to come to the school and speak to the students, he said after a moment. I'm sure he could. I'll mention it to him, Professor, I promised. Professor Hartzenbosch bridled at that. The great author ought to be coming to his school out of respect for him, not because a seventeen-year-old cub reporter sent him. But then Professor Hartzenbosch always took the attitude that he was conferring a favor on the times when he had anything he wanted publicity on. The elevator door opened, and Lautier and the professor joined in the push to get into it. I hung back, deciding to wait for the next one so that I could get in first and get back to the rear, where my hamper wouldn't be in people's way. After a while it came back empty, and I got on and when the crowd pushed off on the top level, I put my hamper back on contragravity and towed it out into the outdoor air, which by this time had gotten almost as cool as a bake-oven. I looked up at the sky, where everybody else was looking. The Painaminda wasn't visible. It was still a few thousand miles off planet. Big, ragged clouds were still blowing in from the west, very high, and the sunset was even brighter and redder than when I had seen it last, ten hours before. It was now about sixteen-thirty. Now, before anybody starts asking just who's crazy, let me point out that this is not on Terra, nor on Baldur, nor Thor, nor Odin, nor Freya, nor any other rational planet. This is Fenris, and on Fenris the sunsets like many other things, are somewhat peculiar. Fenris is the second planet of a G-4 star, six hundred and fifty light-years to the galactic southwest of the Sol system. Everything else equal, it should have been pretty much Terra-type, closer to a cooler primary and getting about the same amount of radiation. At least, that's what the book says. I was born on Fenris, and have never been off it in the seventeen years since. Everything else, however, is not equal. The Fenris year is a trifle shorter than the Terran year we use for atomic-era dating, eight thousand and a few odd galactic standard hours. In that time, 
Fenris makes almost exactly four axial rotations. This means that on one side the sun is continuously in the sky for a thousand hours, pouring down unceasing heat, while the other side is in shadow. You sleep eight hours, and when you get up and go outside, in an insulated vehicle or an extreme environment suit, you find that the shadows have moved only an inch or so, and it's that much hotter. Finally, the sun crawls down to the horizon and hangs there for a few days, periods of twenty-four G.S. hours, and then slides slowly out of sight. Then for about a hundred hours there is a beautiful, unfading sunset, and it's really pleasant outdoors. Then it gets darker and colder, until, just before sunrise, it gets almost cold enough to free CO2. Then the sun comes up, and we begin all over again. You are picking up the impression, I trust, that, as planets go, Fenris is nobody's bargain. It isn't a real hell planet, and spacemen haven't made a swear word out of its name, as they have with the name of fluorine atmosphere Niflheim, but even the Reverend Hiram Zilker, the orthodox monophysite preacher, admits that it's one of those planets the Creator must have gotten a trifle absent-minded with. The chartered company that colonized it, back at the end of the fourth century A.E., went bankrupt in ten years, and it wouldn't have taken that long if communication between Terra and Fenris hadn't been a matter of six months each way. When the smash finally came, two hundred and fifty thousand colonists were left stranded. They lost everything they put into the company, which, for the most of them, was all they had. Not a few lost their lives before the Federation Space Navy could get ships here to evacuate them. For about a thousand, who were too poor to make a fresh start elsewhere, and too tough for Fenris to kill, refused evacuation, took over all the equipment and installation the Fenris Company had abandoned, and tried to make a living out of the planet. At least, they stayed alive. There are now twenty-odd thousand of us, and while we are still very poor, we are very tough, and we brag about it. There were about two thousand people, ten percent of the planetary population, on the wide concrete promenade around the spaceport landing pit. I came out among them and set down the hamper with my telecast cameras and recorders, wishing, as usual, that I would find some ten- or twelve-year-old kid, weak-minded enough to want to be a reporter when he grew up, so that I could have an apprentice to help me with my junk. As the star, and only, reporter of the greatest, and only, paper on the planet, I was always on hand when either of the two ships on the Terra Odin milk run, the Painaminda and the Cape Canaveral, landed. Of course, we always talk to them by screen as soon as they come out of hyperspace and into radio range, and get the passenger list and a speed recording of any news they are carrying, from the latest native uprising on Thor to the latest political scandal on Venus. Sometime the natives of Thor won't be fighting anybody at all, or the Federation member Republic of Venus will have some non-scandalous politics and either will be the man-bites-dog story to end man-bites-dog stories. All the news is at least six months old, 
some more than a year. A spaceship can log a light year in sixty-odd hours, but radio waves still crawl along at the same old 186,000 miles per second. I still have to meet the ships. There's always something that has to be picked up personally, usually an interview with some VIP traveling through. This time, though, the big story coming in on the Painaminda was a local item. Paradox? Dad says there's no such thing. He says a paradox is either a verbal contradiction, and you get rid of it by restating it correctly, or it's a structural contradiction, and you just call it an impossibility and let it go at that. In this case, what was coming in was a real live author, who was going to write a travel book about Fenris, the planet with the four-day year. Glenn Morell which sounded suspiciously like a nom de plume, and nobody here had ever heard of him. That was odd, too. One thing we can really be proud of here, besides the toughness of our citizens, is our public library. When people have to stay underground most of the time to avoid being fried and or frozen to death, they have a lot of time to kill and reading is one of the cheaper and more harmless and profitable ways of doing it. And travel books are a special favorite here. I suppose because everybody is hoping to read about a worse place than Fenris. I had checked on Glenn Morell at the library. None of the librarians had ever heard of him, and there wasn't a single mention of him in any of the big catalogues of publications. The first and obvious conclusion would be that Mr. Glenn Morell was some swindler posing as an author. The only objection to that was that I couldn't quite see why any swindler would come to Fenris, or what he'd expect to swindle the Fenrisians out of. Of course, he could be on the lam from somewhere, but in that case, why bother with all the cover story? Some of our better-known citizens came here dodging warrants on other planets. I was still wondering about Morell when somebody behind me greeted me, and I turned around. It was Tom Kyvelson. Tom and I are buddies, when he's in port. He's just a shade older than I am. He was eighteen around noon, and my eighteenth birthday won't come till midnight, Fenris Standard Sundial time. His father is Joe Kyvelson, the skipper of the Javelin. Tom is sort of junior engineer, second gunner, and about third harpooner. We went to school together, which is to say, a couple of years at Professor Hartzenbosch's, learning to read and write and put figures together. That is all the schooling anybody on Fenris gets, although Joe Kyvelson sent Tom's older sister Linda to school on Terra. Anybody who stays here has to dig out education for himself. Tom and I were still digging for ours. Each of us envied the other, when we weren't thinking seriously about it. I imagined that sea-monster hunting was wonderfully thrilling and romantic, and Tom had the idea that being a newsman was real hot stuff. When we actually stopped to think about it, though, we realized that neither of us would trade jobs and take anything at all for boot. Tom couldn't string three sentences, no, one sentence, together to save his life, and I'm just a town boy who likes to live in something that isn't pitching end for end every minute.
Tom is about three inches taller than I am, and about thirty pounds heavier. Like all monster hunters, he's trying to grow a beard, though at present it's just a blond chin-fuzz. I was surprised to see him dressed as I was, in shorts and sandals, and a white shirt and a light jacket. Ordinarily, even in town, he wears boat clothes. I looked around behind him and saw the brass tip of a scabbard under the jacket. Any time a hunter-ship man doesn't have his knife on, he isn't wearing anything else. I wondered about his being in port now. I knew Joe Kyvelson wouldn't bring his ship in just to meet the Painaminda, with only a couple of hundred hours hunting left till the storms and the cold. I thought you were down in the South Ocean, I said. There's going to be a special meeting of the co-op, he said. We only heard about it last evening. By which he meant after 1800 of the previous Galactic Standard Day. He named another hunter-ship captain who had called the javelin by screen. We screened everybody else we could. That was the way they ran things in the hunter's cooperative. Steve Ravick would wait till everybody had their ships down on the coast of Herman Reuch's land, and then he would call a meeting and pack it with his stooges and hooligans, and get anything he wanted voted through. I had always wondered how long the real hunters were going to stand for that. They'd been standing for it ever since I could remember anything outside my own playpen, which, of course, hadn't been too long. I was about to say something to that effect, and then somebody yelled, "'There she is!' I took a quick look at the radar bowls to see which way they were pointed, and followed them up into the sky, and caught a tiny twinkle through a cloud rift. After a moment's mental arithmetic to figure out how high she'd have to be to catch the sunlight, I relaxed. Even with the telephoto, I'd only get a picture the size of a pinhead, so I fixed the position in my mind, and then looked around at the crowd. Among them were two men, both well-dressed. One was tall and slender, with small hands and feet. The other was short and stout, with a scrubby gray-brown mustache. The slender one had a bulge under his left arm, and the short and stout job bulged over the right hip. The former was Steve Ravick, the boss of the hunter's cooperative, and his companion was the Honorable Morton Hallstock, mayor of Port Sandor, and consequently the planetary government of Fenris. They had held their respective positions for as long as I could remember anything at all. I could never remember an election in Port Sandor, or an election of officers in the co-op. Ravik had a bunch of goons and triggermen, I could see a couple of them loitering in the background, who kept down opposition for him. So did Hallstock, only his wore badges and called themselves police. Once in a while, Dad would write a blistering editorial about one or the other, or both of them. Whenever he did, I would put my gun on, and so would Julio Kubanov, the one-legged compositor who is the third member of the Time staff, and we would take turns making sure nobody got behind Dad's back. Nothing ever happened, though, and that always rather hurt me. Those two racketeers were in so tight they didn't need to care what the Times printed or cast about them. Hallstock glanced over in my direction and said something to Ravick. Ravick gave a sneering laugh, 
and then he crushed out the cigarette he was smoking in the palm of his left hand. That was a regular trick of his, showing how tough he was. Dad says that when you see somebody showing off, ask yourself whether he's trying to impress other people or himself. I wondered which was the case with Steve Ravick. Then I looked up again. The Painaminda was coming down as fast as she could without overheating from atmosphere friction. She was almost buckshot-sized to the naked eye, and a couple of tugs were getting ready to go up and meet her. I got the telephoto camera out of the hamper, checked it, and aimed it. It has a shoulder stock and hand grips and a trigger like a submachine gun. I caught the ship in the finder and squeezed the trigger for a couple of seconds. It would be about five minutes till the tugs got to her and anything else happened, so I put down the camera and looked around. Coming through the crowd, walking as though the concrete under him was pitching and rolling like a ship's deck on contragravity in a storm, was Bish Ware. He caught sight of us, waved, overbalanced himself, and recovered, and then changed course to starboard and bore down on us. He was carrying about his usual cargo, and as usual the manifest would read, Balder Honey Rum from Harry Wong's Bar. Bish wasn't his real name. Neither, I suspected, was Ware. When he'd first landed on Fenris, some five years ago, somebody had nicknamed him the Bishop, and before long that had gotten cut to one syllable. He looked like a bishop, or at least like what anybody who's never seen a bishop outside a screenplay would think a bishop looked like. He was a big man, not fat, but tall and portly. He had a ruddy face that always wore an expression of benevolent wisdom, and the more cargo he took on, the wiser and more benevolent he looked. He had iron-gray hair, but he wasn't old. You could tell that by the backs of his hands. They weren't wrinkled or crepey, and the veins didn't protrude. And, drunk or sober, though I never remembered seeing him in the latter condition, he had the fastest reflexes of anybody I knew. I saw him once, standing at the bar in Harry Wong's, knock over an open bottle with his left elbow. He spun half around, grabbed it by the neck, and set it up, all in one motion, without spilling a drop and he went on talking as though nothing had happened. He was quoting Homer, I remembered, and you could tell that he was thinking in the original ancient Greek, and translating into lingua terra as he went. He was always dressed as he was now, in a conservative black suit, the jacket a trifle longer than usual, and a black neckcloth with an uller organic opal pin. He didn't work at anything, but quarterly— once every planetary day, a draft on the banking cartel would come in for him, and he'd deposit it with the Port Sandor Fidelity and Trust. If anybody was unmannerly enough to ask him about it, he always said he had a rich uncle on Terra. When I was a kid, well, more of a kid than I am now, I used to believe he really was a bishop, unfrocked, of course, or ungatered, or whatever they call it when they give a bishop the heave-ho. A lot of people who weren't kids still believed that, and they blamed him on every denomination from Anglicans to Zen Buddhists, not even missing the Satanists, 
and there were all sorts of theories about what he'd done to get excommunicated, the mildest of which was that somewhere there was a cathedral standing unfinished because he'd hypered out with the building fund. It was generally agreed that his ecclesiastical organization was paying him to stay out there in the boondocks, where he wouldn't cause them further embarrassment. I was pretty sure myself that he was being paid by somebody, probably his family, to stay out of sight. The colonial planets are full of that sort of remittance men. Bish and I were pretty good friends. There were certain old ladies, of both sexes and all ages, of whom Professor Hartzenbosch was an example, who took Dad to task occasionally for letting me associate with him. Dad simply ignored them. As long as I was going to be a reporter, I'd have to have news sources, and Bish was a dandy. He knew all the disreputable characters in town, which saved me having to associate with all of them. And it is sad, but true, that you get very few news stories in Sunday school. Far from fearing that Bish would be a bad influence on me, he'd rather hoped I'd be a good one on Bish. I had that in mind, too, if I could think of any way of managing it. Bish had been a good man once. He still was, except for one thing. You could tell that, before he'd started drinking, he'd really been somebody somewhere. Then something bad must have happened to him, and now he was here on Fenris, trying to hide from it behind a bottle. Something ought to be done to give him a shove up on his feet again. I hate waste, and a man of the sort he must have been, turning himself into the rum-pot he was now, was a waste of the worst kind. It would take a lot of doing, though, and careful tactical planning. Preaching at him would be worse than useless, so would simply trying to get him to stop drinking. And that would be what Doc Rojansky at the hospital would call treating the symptoms. The thing to do was make him want to stop drinking, and I didn't know how I was going to manage that. I'd thought, a couple of times, of getting him to work on the times, but we barely made enough money out of it for ourselves, and with his remittance he didn't need to work. I had a lot of other ideas now and then, but every time I took a second look at one, it got sick and died. End of chapter 1